Bring It On is a public affairs program exploring the people, issues, and events affecting the African-American communities in South Central Indiana and beyond. Bring It On is a forum for the people, by the people, produced by an independent team of volunteers working at the studios of Community Radio WFHB in Bloomington, Indiana, and financially supported by listeners like you. Good evening. I am Chantal Lafontante, and welcome to Bring It On, a multiple Best in Indiana Journalism award-winning public affairs program. Celebrating over 14 years as Indiana's only weekly community show committed to exploring the people, issues, and events impacting the African-American community. Today, Bring It On features a special two-part archived broadcast featuring two unique challenges for African and Latino males in America. Leading off is a discussion that explores the socially engineered mechanism created by our government via the public school system to label elementary age African American males as work for hire targets within the U.S. penal system. Here now are co-anchors Wilma Hosea and Bev Smith welcoming award-winning journalist and filmmaker Raheem Shabazz that originally aired on August 11, 2014. Reading level of black boys at the conclusion of elementary school which is normally fourth or fifth grade to determine, to predict how many new prison cells they'll need in the next decade. Statistically, if a black boy cannot read by the time he finishes the fifth grade, there's a 75% chance that he will be a criminal by the age of 25. And you just heard a clip from Elementary Genocide, a new documentary by Raheem Shabazz, owner of Rasha Entertainment, Inc., an award-winning journalist and filmmaker. The gifted writer's byline has been spotted on the pages of The Source, XXL Magazine, Vibe Magazine Rolling Out, Urban Enterprise Magazine, and AllHipHop.com, to name a few. Shabazz has appeared on BET, Stars in Black, and MTV News. He has interviewed an array of celebrities and executives, including media maven Tyler Perry, hip-hop legend 50 Cent, and entertainment icon Magic Johnson. As a documentary filmmaker, Raheem Shabazz executive produced Elementary Genocide, which exposes the socially engineered mechanism created by our government and utilizing the public school system to label elementary-aged African-American males as work-for-hire targets within the U.S. penal system. Elementary Genocide confirms this theory and seeks to educate parents, teachers and families so what we can so that we can reclaim our young men and ensure the future of our community Raheem now joins us by phone along with Bev and I <laughs> yes Mr. Shabazz welcome to bring it on hey how you doing brother awesome, I'm glad awesome. to be a part of it well, we are certainly glad to have you here. You have an incredible work that you have executive produced called Elementary Genocide. Would you give the our listening audience an overview of what they can expect if they are watching? Well, Elementary Genocide basically is a call to action. It's more than just a documentary. Um, it explores the government and how the public school system utilizes the reading scores of third and fourth graders to determine how many prisons they're going to build in the next 10 or 15 years. Because we know that if you're not reading on grade level, by the time you're in the fourth or fifth grade, there's a 75% chance that you're going to end up in jail. And we look at those statistics. We also look at 
the zero tolerance rate and how that is fueling uh, children from the public school system and until the school to prison pipeline. Um, just recently, I was in North Carolina, and in North Carolina, more than 40% of juvenile court cases start in the school. So there's a direct relationship between the school and the prison system. And we explore that in the documentary, and we also offer solutions to dismantle uh, the prison industrial complex. Mr. Shabazz, you um, cite a lot of statistics on your, on, on, from the trailer on your website, uh, one of which is that uh, our government incarcerates more black people than South Africa did during the height of apartheid. Absolutely. Which just, I mean, that just amazed me when I when I read it. Does your docu your documentary uh, go into that even further and in, in more detail? Uh, yes, it goes into uh, more detail, and uh, a lot of it is um, statistical facts um, that can be verified. You know, whenever you have the Department of Justice, you know, um, in the White House, um, stating these facts. It's no longer urban myth. A lot of people, you know, when these statistics first came out, they thought it was just an urban myth. But it, it's real, it's reality, and it's a sad situation all across the board for children, for their parents, you know, because this this is the generation. This is the generation that, that is going to follow them. Mm -hmm. Now, Mr. Shabazz, you've had your work featured in The Source, Double XL, Vibe. Certainly being a writer is a lot different than taking on a documentary. How did you get yourself prepared for this project? Uh, it, it, it was a cruel process to prepare yourself. Um, I always wanted to be involved in, in film, but my thing was journalism. I started out as a writer, so... It was a natural transition for me, you know, it's mm -hmm. the written words. I'm using uh, moving images to convey the message to the people. So the transition from um, writing and to doing film, it, it wasn't a hard transition. And Mr. Shabazz, isn't it, uh, or is it true that uh, part of the problem is uh, prisons for profit because that really gives them a, a, a strong incentive to keep those uh, prison beds filled. Absolutely, absolutely. Everything is fueled by money. You know, um, if you look at um, the charter school system, you know, a lot of people are saying, okay, we know that the educational system is not fully educating our youth, and they look at alternatives like the charter system, you know, the charter schools. But if you do any research, you will find that charter schools are nothing more than IPOs, which is really initial broadcast offering. And these charter school principals, they operate more like CEOs of companies, and they work closely with elected school board officials. And the charter schools are public, publicly funded and managed by private entities, just like the state and federal prisons. And the business model is the same. It has been revealed that a lot of board members of charter school or board members of private prisons, such as GEO and CCA, they're heavily invested in private prison. And I don't know if you're aware, but there's another documentary where um, it's called Cash for Kids. And there was a judge 
that was sentencing these young youth over five thousand yeah. mm-hmm. and I think within a five year period he made over two point five million dollars um well he was just selling them to the private prison because they have a quota that they reach with the state where they want ninety percent of their beds occupied for the next twenty years. So it's all about money and it's big business. And if you look at it, it costs way far less to educate a child than it is to incarcerate them. I think in the city of New York, um, just to go to a city college is is, is less than $8,000. But to imprison someone for one year in New York is over $40,000. It's staggering. Did you meet with any resistance when you were putting together the documentary? Were people willing to talk? Some was willing to talk, some was not. Um, I had people that signed on um, to be a part of the documentary, and then I guess, you know, maybe speaking with someone else or fully thinking about it, they had a change in mind. And, you know, they privately told me, Raheem, I believe in everything that you're doing. And what you're saying is the absolute truth. But I work for the school system, and I don't think that would be a good look for me. And also, you know, um, that 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 was the only thing. Um, as far as resistance, um, it wasn't no real resistance. It was just people was reluctant to come forward and, and, and talk truth to power. But um, there are those, you know, that, you know, was going to tell the truth regardless and let the chips fall where they may. You know, because a lot of these, you you have some teachers that, you know, have a vested interest in these kids. You know, these kids remind them of their children, and they want to see them do the best and be the best that they can be. But a lot of times their hands are tied because they work for a system that is in need of a pair. The curriculum is outdated. The tests that they take are a standardized tests that are culturally biased. Even the way that we're being taught, the children are being taught uh, in, in Western culture, um, they're being taught from a lineal aspect, you know, and they're not being taught from an Afrocentric point of view or anything that they can resonate with them and what they see in their community and how they grow up and things that they're used to, you know. And Mr. Shabazz, you... Uh one of the solutions that you recommend is for parents to homeschool their children. So uh, are you suggesting that uh, none of the schools, charter and public, uh, uh, should be, you know, trusted? Well, no, I'm not, I'm not going to suggest that. I'm not going to suggest that. Okay. Um, there are a lot of charter schools that, that are doing exceptionally well. Um, there's one in Chicago, the south side of Chicago, uh, for the last four years, they had um, almost a hundred percent graduation rate. There's also Dr. Steve Perry in um, Connecticut. Uh, he's the number one uh, principal in Connecticut. Uh, his school is doing phenomenal, you know. Um, but there's others that 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 are falling below, you know, um, the reading level. Um, if you look in the, in, the, in the state of Philadelphia, they closed 32 schools. And within months of closing 32 schools, they built a prison for $400 million. You know, um, education is not a priority in that state. Um, The end result is that the kids is going to suffer. 
I was just reading something online. I have yet to do the research on it, but it's uh, um, a new model that they're trying out where it's going to be 100 kids in one classroom. And it's in a, a district that's predominantly black. And as you know, they, they try things out on minorities and see if it works. And then they're just doing across the board in every uh, city. Is this a technology-based kind of piece that will expose 100 students to um, this? Like I said, I, I, I read uh, briefly of it. I, did, I didn't get in all the way to it. Um, just the headline alone shocked me. And, I, and like I said, I, I really speed read through it. And it was one of those things where I was like, wow, I'm really have to get back and read this. Mm-hmm. Um, it, it's online. You know, um, Facebook, they've been going crazy talking about it. You know, and see, that, and, and that's the good thing about it with, with social media. You know, a lot of things is being revealed about these school systems and what's going on, you know, with, with the zero tolerance. Whenever you can um, handcuff and arrest an eight-year-old girl because she was talking back to the teacher and disrupting the class, you know, that's adolescent behavior. You know, um, they said that the brain doesn't fully develop until you 25 years old. You know, um, their brain is not wired to function on that level as adults. So why would you, they're kids, and these are things that kids do and children do, so why would you put them in handcuffs? You know, just um, when you look at the children when they go to school, school represents a prison. You know, before they even see a teacher and they enter the school, the first person they're greeted by is a resource officer, which is nothing more than a police officer with a badge, a gun, and a metal detector. And and it's the same way when you go to visit someone in prison. So there's a direct correlation. Now, you mentioned certainly there were some schools that you've highlighted that are doing well. What are the best practices that you can see that help them sort of turn that tide and not become part of the statistics of which you're featuring? The, the curriculum. The curriculum. Mm-hmm. They're teaching them about their history. They teach them to look at themselves and to see themselves as great individuals. And they take them through the history where we was African kings and queens and that we invented a lot of things and what we contribute to society. In the public educational system, they're going to tell you that, you know, George Washington, uh, George Washington, you know, uh, he never told a lie. They're going to teach you Christopher Columbus discovered America, you know, and the kids know that's not true, you know, and none of that resonates with them. They have nothing in common with George Washington, and they certainly don't have nothing in common with Christopher Columbus. So, you know, when you teach Mm. stuff like that and it's not resonating with the youth, and you and, and then something more importantly that I want to highlight, if I can, mm-hmm. if you look at the teachers, uh, the teachers, seventy-three percent of them doesn't look like the students that they are teaching, and they're predominantly female. And um, it, it, it's sad when you don't have strong African American males teaching males, or or intellectual sister teaching these young black children, you know, female children. And, you know, and and until that happens, it's going to be a sad state for us as a people. Did you ever get into the, this aspect of how many young people are going into education anymore? Are they attracted to those types of fields? How do we get 
more teachers of color into pipelines and into systems to be hired? Well, in a documentary, uh, rapper Killer Mike said something that was real phenomenal. Um, he said that if they were to come up with a program where they allow free education for those that pursue the teaching field, they don't have to pay no student loans back and immediately can graduate and from school that they can go straight into teaching, you know, that will entice more of us to become, you know, teachers. And I, I, I think a lot of people look at, you know, the salary of teachers. It's not the best paying job. So um, I think that, uh, deter- you know, derails us from wanting to pursue the, uh, the teaching field. You know, I apologize for jumping around here like we are, but this is such uh, an interesting topic, and it just it just generates so many questions. But I want to ask, uh, what are some of the other st- uh, statistics uh, that that uh, that you were able to uncover in your research? All right, we was able to find out that more than fifty percent of African American males in the fourth grade did not meet the standard criteria in reading. And when that happens, eventually they drop out. And guess what? 80% of those dropouts end up in prison, and 40% of that is 40% of that is 80%, which is African American. You know, just those statistics alone, that 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 is startling. Um, just like you know, Dr. Carnell West said, rich children get taught, and poor children get tested, and. That's what's happening, you know, and that's why we're falling below the uh, national reading level is because we're not being taught. We're being tested. And these tests, like I said before, are, are culturally biased. Um, when they measure these tests and they measure the IQs, these come from individuals that was the father of uh, eugenics, uh, racy Nazi individuals that uh, will have you believe that, you know, we're one chromosome away from being farm animals. And these are the, te- these are the type of people that we have teaching our, our babies. So where do we arm ourselves to go in and, uh, if you will, fight this and really turn things around? How do we take control of the educational process for our children? Well, I, I encourage every parent to... Um, begin to educate their children at home. I'm a strong advocate of homeschooling. Uh, naturally, you know, with the economy the way it is, um, both parents have to work just to make, to, to make ends meet. So that might not be a viable option for them. Um, however, you know, you, you can do it two days out of a week and have another parent for the next three days. You know, you, you can alternate days that you teach. Um, also, um, you know, there, there, if you, there's a um, website called uh, Test Your Kids um, by Yusuf Salam, and um, they talk about uh, opening up reading centers around the country. Um, that, that's one of the ways to I- increase the, 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 the reading level. There's a, there's a lot of different ways that you can do that because, you know, in the documentary, it focused about the third and fourth grade, which is their primary year, that's when we're able to grab the statistics um, because that's their formative years. 
But the school to prison pipeline starts earlier than that. It starts the first day a child walks into a kindergarten class. So you have to have them prepared when they when, when before they enter kindergarten. They need to know their ABCs. They need to have social skills, and they need to be ahead of everybody else in that classroom. Mr. Uh, Shabazz, when you talk about the school to prison pipeline, um, you mentioned that charter schools have an ins- a financial incentive to to uh, in that whole thing. Is there a clear distinction between the roles of uh, public schools and charter schools? Again, within that within that conversation of uh, uh, no, there's not because a lot of charter schools is funded with public money the same way that um, the the public school system is funded. Not all of their money comes from the public, but some of it does come from the public. So that's why a lot of them are not effective as they should be, and it's almost like a, a, a public school with just smaller classes. But that's something that's fairly new, though, isn't it, public funding for, for charter schools? Um, no, when, when, when they started charter schools, that's how, that's how, that's how they've been getting their funding. So for the parent who is not necessarily able to homeschool, it does require a lot of time, energy, and preparation to adequately educate a child. How do you work in systems if you, if that is your choice to be a part of a public school system? How do you work with the corporation to really get what you need for your child? Well, I, I believe that a lot of parents are already homeschooling and don't even know it. You mm-hmm. know, when you okay. sit down and you help your, your, your children with their math or with their reading or if you give them an assignment to read a book. I know when I was coming up, we had to read books and do a book report. That's homeschooling. You're doing it without even knowing about it. But for those that are, that are not in a position to do it full-time, then um, I, I suggest, you know, that there's homeschools, there's homeschoolers that have, like, schools in, in their house and in community centers. I, 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 another option would be to send them to them. And um, if you look at homeschooling, a lot of people don't know this, is that you don't have to have a, a certification to homeschool, especially when you're doing it um, in their uh, formative years. Now, when they get to high school and different things like that, there's certain courses that I think you have to have, and I do recommend that you have some sort of education when, when they get to that level. But um, initially, you, as long as you uh, have all the paperwork and everything signed and you follow the letter of the law, you know, you, you can homeschool, you know. Um, but a lot of people are not being taught that, you know, um, and that's on the Internet as well. Um, also, in, in the state of um, Seattle, um, they give you money. They actually pay you to homeschool your child. And I think that's something that should be adopted all across the board in every country, every county, and every city. Do you know what kind of results they're getting from that program? Um, no, I, I, I don't know the results. I don't know the results for that particular program. But what I can tell you, according to statistics, those that are homeschooled are, are, are less likely to end up in the, in, in the, in the prison system. That's a known fact. 
It would certainly be interesting to have more statistics on that in terms of what you're saying. You certainly do have a homeschooling perspective in this, and I'm not saying it's wrong. Is the answer just to totally walk away from our public schools? Um, it, it, you know what? It, it, I, I don't think that um, in reality that that's going to happen. I think public schools is, is always going to exist. But this is not something that just happened overnight. This is a systematic plan that that been designed and that been in existence for years, and it, it, it's not it's not going to go away in one day. So the only alternative is to teach your, your children. If you have to send them to public school when they come home, you need to re-educate them as well. And for our listening audience, we're speaking to Mr. Rahim Shabazz documentary filmmaker and executive producer of Elementary Genocide. In terms, I'm going to turn a corner from the actual application and the research to how you get your work distributed. Did you choose to go internet? How did you choose to distribute? Oh, as far as the documentary? Uh Uh-huh. We have have, uh, a a non-exclusive deal with several different uh, distributors across, across the country. Um, the documentary is doing exceptionally well on elementarygenocide.com. You can go there and get it. You can also go to Your Black World. They are selling exceptionally well on there. Um, I have a list of retailers, uh, independent retailers that are, that are, that are selling it. Um, that's on the website. Also, um, you can pre-order it. You know, a lot of people like to uh, order DVDs on Amazon. So as of uh, September 23rd, you'll be able to order the actual DVD on there. If you want to just get the digital file and download it and watch it on your computer, as opposed to a physical DVD, you will be able to do that. And um, we will be on iTunes, um, and we're looking at a couple of other uh, digital platforms to present it on. And who knows, maybe one day we will be on Netflix, Redbox, and HBO. That's right. Think, think mass distribution. You're going at it. Now, in terms of the cost for a download or for um, a DVD, what can a retailer or what can a person expect to pay? Um, you can expect to pay anywhere from 15 to $20. You know, um, if you go to the website, elementarygenocide.com, uh, it's uh, $20. Um, me personally, when I'm um, doing my screenings, I've been screening all across the country. Um, I, I've been to North Carolina, New York, Connecticut, Boston, San Diego. Um, next month, I'll be in L.A. And um, I have uh, screenings and speaking engagements all the way to the end of, the, uh, of this year. And when I'm out, you know, we give them away for $10. You know, because um, at the end of the day, it's really not about the money. It's more so about the message. And that was Rahim Shabiz Shabazz speaking about the prison to school pipeline with co-anchors William Hosea and Biff Smith on August 11th, 2014. This is Bring It On, Indiana's only public affairs program dedicated to the African-American community here on WFHB 91.3 FM live on the web at wfhb.org. To keep up with local news and to find out what's going on behind the scenes at WFHB, you're invited to like the WFHB 
Facebook page. Go to Facebook.com and search for WFHB. Or you can always visit the WFHB news website at WFHB.org slash news. As mentioned at the top of the hour, today Bring It On is a features of a two-part archive broadcast featuring two unique challenges to Black males in America. You just heard a discussion on elementary genocide with journalist and filmmaker Raheem Shabazz. Now the second feature, which first featured first aired on February of 2014, features guest Richard Coleman, director of the Center for Career and Employer Relations at Vincennes University. He joined William Hosea to discuss doctoral research into why American, African-American and Hispanic males experience academic distress in college. The findings of his research into alarming patterns are compiled in his work titled Resilience in African-American Male College Students. Here now is that interview from 2014. From the pages of Diverse Issues in Higher Education, we read that there is significant emphasis placed on the retention and success rate in community colleges among African-American and Hispanic males. Many are experiencing great problems in our society and within the social structure. Many African-American and Hispanic males experience academic distress in colleges and have frequently been described in research studies as A, being from a low socioeconomic uh, academic background, B, being a minimal academic achiever, and C, possessing a general low self-concept. Major research efforts have identified a number of factors that tend to impact minority males' decisions to drop or even stop out of colleges. To explore this further, we have invited Richard Coleman from Vincennes University to join us to discuss his pending doctoral research into these alarming patterns. Richard first became inspired to research this issue by an African-American student who worked as an intern in our office. I was then further inspired by this story towards my dissertation topic that has evolved into the title of Resilience in African-American Male College Students. Richard believes that this topic is critically important because African-American males are in prison in larger numbers than on college and university campuses. Of those African-American males who matriculate to campuses, a majority fall through the cracks due to lack of support and a failure to believe in self. It is our pleasure to welcome Richard Coleman, Director of the Center for Career and Employer Relations at Vincennes University. Richard, are you there? Welcome to Bring It On. I'm here, Clarence. Thank you very much. Awesome. Actually, Richard, this is William. Oh, William. I'm sorry. That's okay. Me and Clarence, we sound just alike. <laughs> but listen, uh, tell us a little bit about your, your doctoral research. This is really a powerful issue, and, and you know we could be here for hours talking about it, but try and, uh, and, and give us the main points of, uh, of your research, please. Well, I work with students every day, um, all students, and uh, this one particular student who worked in our office as an intern really inspired me because I started looking at his life and some of the challenges that he's faced and has overcome, and that coupled with the story of Hole in the Head, A Life Revealed, uh, really made me want to look more into the whole situation with African-American male college students. So I'm doing a qualitative study uh, where I will be interviewing um, 
black male college students um, about their lives, uh, what's happened in their lives before they came to college, and then what's going on in their lives in college that is either increasing their resilience or detracting from it. So uh, I'm hoping that it can have some significant impact to give uh, college campuses employees on college campuses a sense of what they can do um, to reach out and help um, African-American males. And what they will do for African-American males will help all other students, too. But I think that particular population struggles in in somewhat of a unique way and, and needs uh, a shoring up. Now, in our opening narrative, uh, I actually read that there is significant emphasis placed on the retention and success rate in community colleges among African-American and Hispanic males. So why is community college receiving uh, significant emphasis? Well, I think often community colleges have an open-door policy, and so depending on what kind of an academic background students have had in the past, it may be that that's the uh the most likely avenue for them to enter college okay and uh why is it that you know african-american and hispanic males show up at say major universities seemingly just by the numbers they seem to be ill-prepared for college i mean what's the big difference between that and and other uh groups other populations Yes. Well, I think often uh, African-American males may be first generation, so they may be the first person in their family to attend college. So where students who have had parents attend college uh, have those parents kind of grooming them for what to expect, uh, first-generation students don't often have that, so they don't know what to expect when they get to college. Um, If they've had a poor academic background and history, they're not very prepared to face college. So those two things coupled together, I think, often put those students at a unique disadvantage. Um, So they've almost got a strike going against them before they get to college. And so I think it's it's critical that they find someone on a college campus who is an anchor of support for them. Um, That could be their academic advisor. It might be one of the teachers they have. It might be someone like myself in student affairs uh, who they connect with early on, and then that's a safe place where they can go and ask questions and feel like there's no dumb question. Now, the the disconnect obviously starts before they show up uh, on a college campus. So as as a society, where do you think we tend to begin losing uh, that part of the population in in the education system? Where do they initially start to fail? Well, I think many students um, fail at somewhere around middle school, high school, uh, when other things become important to them. And uh, again, unless they have someone nurturing them and, and nudging them and sometimes pushing them in the right direction, it's so easy to go off track and get into uh, a situation where the wrong things are priority. And I think once that starts to happen, uh, it, it really takes someone um, 
paying particular attention to them to wake them up and help them see that they're, you know, they want a different path for their life. I know years ago I was teaching a class for adult students, and we were working with learning styles, and there was an African-American woman in the class in her 40s, and she started crying, and we took a break, and I asked her if she could tell me what was wrong, and she said when she was in fourth grade, her teacher told her, blacks can't do math. And she said, tonight's the first time I understood that I can do math, I just can't do it the way that teacher was teaching it. And she said, all my life I've stayed away from any career that had anything to do with math. And I said to her, probably that teacher had no idea how much he or she was paralyzing you by making that statement. But that was such a wake-up call for her that I can do this, I just need to approach it in a different way. So that's an, an extreme example, but I think often students get the message from somebody that they can't do something, that I'm not good at something, and so then they just give up. And once they give up, it's very hard to get them to revisit and see that, yes, I can do that, I just might need to approach it in a different way. Now, in your research, do you also explore different ways or, or, or uh, more effective ways to reach uh, those African-American and Hispanic males? Well, I think they have to have a place on campus where they feel safe, uh, where they feel they can turn, and, and I think it helps if they have other people who look like them. Um, and I think um, regardless of whether those people are there or not, if there's, if there's something they can get involved in where they feel they fit um, and they feel good about themselves, then I think they start to feel like they belong. And often, once they feel like they belong, that's a motivating factor that, okay, now I want to be here, and in order to stay here, I need to do well academically. Um, too often, I think, if there's not a sense of, I fit and I belong here, then if that, if that background isn't there to do well academically, then it's almost a self-fulfilling prophecy that, okay, well, then I'll just go back home and, and do something different. Mm -hmm. You say when they get to campus, they need to be, they need to feel comfortable. Yes. Now, when you talk about the population as a whole, getting them to campus, that's a major accomplishment, is it not? It is because, again, I think so often uh, they, they need someone to kind of create that roadmap for them of what do I need to do to get to college. You know, I need to get good grades. Um, I need to apply for financial aid if my family doesn't have resources. I need to go and visit. Um, I need to think about what would I major in, uh, what kinds of careers would be available if I major in that. You know, what do I enjoy doing? What am I good at doing? Um, have I had any experiences that that will make me marketable for the campus that I want to attend. Um, and, and so often, um, students just don't have answers to those questions by themselves, and so they either need a parent or a guidance counselor or a teacher or a community member who kind of takes them under their wing and, and helps them create that, that connection to a college campus. So you really seem to, and, and most of the, uh, your comments, you really seem to come back to nurturing and mentoring. Yes, because I think most of us, you know, uh, we're not islands. We need other people, and uh, especially at certain places in our lives, and that's such a pivotal point, uh, really, for any student, but especially if you're a first-generation college student, you know, to know the ropes, you know, what do I do, uh, you know, what is an advisor, you know, even the, the, the lingo that's used in higher education 
it can be very foreign to a new student if they if they don't have anyone who has laid the groundwork for them. So, um, starting from the time they're considering college and certainly carrying over long into that first semester. The first semester is so important, uh, it creates a foundation to either help them soar or create a situation where they may struggle. So if they have a good first semester experience and they can, uh, can, can rely on that, uh, then, then they often do much better uh, continuing on. If that first semester is rocky, that often begins to send the message, well, maybe this isn't for me, maybe I should just go back home anyway, and, and then it's, it's more of a challenge to get them on that road to success. Okay, now, correct me if I'm wrong, but um, are, you, are you focusing on those males who are, who are still within the educational pipeline? Um, if so, what about those who have dropped out of school prior to college, um, gone to prison and come back or, in, in, you know, somewhere within the, the judicial system and, and just removed from the school system altogether? Well, you address often then what they're doing is if they're coming back to college, they're going to get a GED so that they can uh, then get admitted into college. Uh, so that, again, is a challenge because uh, getting them into that GED classroom, uh, getting them to feel uh a sense of I can do this, um, and an, and a sense of accomplishment as they make progress. Um, I think if they can obtain that GED, that often is such a great feeling that okay, if I can do this, now I'm motivated to go on to college. And so then it's just getting them started on the right path. And sometimes it's as simple as how many credits will I take? You know, do I even know how to study? And uh, one of the great things about our campus is we have all kinds of resources for students. We have labs in math, reading, and writing, so students can go to those labs, get help. We have tutoring available. Students begin study groups. Um, and faculty, for the most part, love to teach. And if a student meets the faculty member halfway, the faculty member will more than meet them back halfway. So I think it's setting the deck for success rather than setting the deck for failure. And, you know, that, that certainly begins with their high school with their GED, but then it carries over um, once they get to that college campus. Now, in your research, uh, have you actually identified uh, a number of factors that tend to impact their decision to drop out of college or? Well, I think it's often the opposite of the, of the kinds of things they need to succeed. So family support, not necessarily, certainly financial support is great, but even if they don't have any financial support, if they have family members who are telling them, you can do this, even if they themselves didn't go to college, if they're telling them, you can do this, this is an opportunity, this is a blessing in your life, you need to succeed, often then there's a sense of, I'm I'm standing up for someone else as well as myself, so I don't want to let them down. Um, so I think lack of family support mm-hmm. is often uh, a critical challenge. Um, what I'm finding is that, especially in the African American community, uh, a spiritual influence, a faith background, is often um, a strength um, that carries students forward. So, uh, in the absence of that, that can be a challenge. Um, having someone on campus, I think probably the, one of the most critical factors is having someone on campus, and that can be anyone. That could be 
a staff member, that could be a faculty member, um, it could even be uh, someone who is uh, who works in the cafeteria. It could be a janitor. It could be anybody that the student feels like they connect with, and they can count on that person, and that person believes in them. So I think often, again, then it's sort of like that family support. They're doing it for someone else as well as themselves. If they feel like they have nobody like that, then they're just floundering out there alone, and you know that's not a good feeling. So that's a I, that's a danger zone or a red flag. Um, I think feeling if they've had some experience of success in their life in the past, then they can often link that 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 good feeling of that success to what they will start to feel if they do well in a class, if they take a test and they do well, if they do well on homework. So if they've had no sense of success uh, before they get to college, then I think relating to that feeling of success can be a challenge. Um, and certainly financial resources. If if they don't have financial aid and their family doesn't have uh, financial resources, then that will be a huge issue. Okay. And for our listening audience, we are speaking with Richard Coleman from Vincennes University. Uh, he's joining us to discuss his pending doctoral research into patterns that affect African-American and Hispanic males' uh, uh, low rates of college attendance. Now, Richard, other than uh, positive uh, mentoring and an environment, a nurturing environment, what are some of the other factors uh, that, that tend to affect these numbers? Well, I think uh, just forming of habits. You know, we all form good habits or bad habits, and I think uh, if if a student uh, is hanging around other students who are goal-oriented, who are at, in college because they want to do well and they, they want to move on to a career, then that student tends to rise to that level. If they're hanging around students who are in college more just to hang out and party, then they tend to drop to that level. So I think um, it's kind of the birds of a feather flock together. The habits students form early on um, are, are critical toward their success or toward the, the dangers of failure. So um, if a student ends up on probation the first semester, uh, that's, that's a significant red flag that they need to change their patterns in order to be successful. So I think just habits forming good habits or forming bad habits is is a foundational um, tool for for college success. And of course, even with uh, your best efforts, uh, the mentoring, the nurturing environment, and putting them with uh, other children who do want to do better, ultimately, it's, it's still up to the individual student to make things happen. Isn't that right? Always. And I see students who I am amazed that they make it. Uh, one student was in here, a black male, uh, last year. Uh, his name was Jonathan, and he came in for help with a resume. And he was very articulate. He seemed to be very um, goal-oriented, and he had about a three-point. And I said, you know, you could have a four-point. I said, you know, who's, who's in your corner? And he looked at me, and he said, what do you mean? And I said, well, who gives you the message that you can do it, that, that you can be successful? And he started crying, and, and he just sobbed. Um, and so I tried to make light of it and said, you know, and you thought you were just coming in here for a resume. And so when he finally was able to get control of his emotions, he said, you won't believe this, but no one has ever told me in my life that I can do it. 
Um, and I looked at him, and I had tears in my eyes, and I said, well, here's one person who's telling you you can do it. So I got to know him, and at graduation, he, he came up on wall, smiles, and hugged me because he made it, and I was the one crying at graduation. So he's an example of someone who I thought could easily not make it because he had many obstacles going against him, but he persevered, and he believed he could make it, and in spite of that fact that other people in his life had not told him he could make it, he, he started to believe in himself. So I, I see many students who have every obstacle going against them, and yet they overcome. On the other hand, I see students who really have it made in many ways, and if they're not dedicated and they're not motivated, then they're going to fall through the cracks even if they have all those kinds of support. So it really does take you know, the student's determination uh, along with all kinds of forms of support uh, for it to work. So your doctoral research is focused on males, is that correct? Yes. Have you come across anything, uh, did it take you into any areas of female uh, uh, college attendance? Well, I think there are some, uh, again, I'm in the initial stages of actually doing the research, but from what I'm finding in the literature, um, often females in in the African-American community um, are the the foundation. Um, And so there's often a sense that they have to do well because they've already had to do well in other areas of their lives. Um, So I think there's more of a a sense of often there's more of a sense of commitment that um, I have to do well. On the other hand, at times that doesn't happen because they have to be that support at home. And so sometimes, you know, it's just too much to be the support at home and then to come to school and be the support as well. But I think because often they are the the support at home, um, again, it it gives um, the African-American male um, a, a sense that somebody else will be there uh, to be that that support person and be that um, maybe role model, and so that uh, is another challenge then for the African American male to step up to the plate and and be that for himself as well as other members of his family, whether it's parents, children, siblings. And that's another thing. Often, uh, when African-American males come to school, they've already had children. And whether they're involved with those children or not, that's another piece of the puzzle that fits in. Okay, and let let me ask you another question. This may be uh, a little bit uh, of a departure from your research, but why do you think that there are so many more uh, African-American females in college as opposed to males? Well, um, I think there are more African-American females who are successful in college. Um, I, I'm not sure that there are so many more going to college, and, and off the top of my head, I don't have those numbers and okay. the gender differences, but I think that, um, again, if the African-American female uh, does not have too much on her plate in terms of having to be the, the the leader in all areas of her life, because she's often already been that at home, she's learned that role and can transfer that well to college. Uh, where I think because often the African-American male hasn't learned that role at home, then it's difficult for him when he gets to college to just transition into that role without a lot of support. 
and the females have probably seen other women in her family and in, in her neighborhood in that role as well, since most uh, African-American households are headed by single mothers. Exactly. And so, you know, I think uh, we all kind of uh, look for uh, examples, uh, and, and when we've got many examples of success around us, then we, we move in that direction. When we have uh, examples that are not working, then unfortunately that, that sometimes becomes a role model. So, um, I mean, I, I work with many students who, who, and not only African-American students, but many students who come from single-parent families, um, and in the case of African-Americans, it's not unusual for a father to either be absent from the picture altogether or to be in prison. Um, and so, you know, that works against a student right from the from the start because they don't have uh two people there to support them and in many cases there's a difficult history um that that's already occurred and so they're they're facing the remnants of that as well as starting from scratch to be successful in a new environment you know what's interesting i i guess it depends on which students you talk to some of the things that negatively impact uh, some students uh, ends up being, you know, a detriment to some and a strength to others. Well, and I think that's that whole piece of resilience, which is my topic, resilience in African-American male college uh-huh. students. You're exactly right. Uh, one student can experience a very difficult situation, and it can be a springboard to motivate them. Right. And another can experience that same situation, and it becomes uh, an excuse or a reason you know, not to be successful. So that's one of the things I'm looking at. What, what are those experiences that students have before they get to college, as well as the experiences in college that lend themselves either to resilience or to lack of resilience. And, and I think it's, it's just not clear-cut. Sometimes it's the message that they have about themselves, you know, that I, I am valuable, I can be successful. Uh, they see that light at the end of the tunnel. They want something as a goal, and they see that in order to get there, they've got to journey this path by path. Uh, where for others, I think, they don't believe that they can get there. It seems unobtainable. And so it, it's easier to just uh, focus on the, the short term of, you know, what's exciting, what's, uh, what can I do right now, instead of recognizing that, okay, you know, if I make that choice, that might be fun, that might be uh, gratifying at the moment, but it's going to work against whatever that long-term goal is that, that would take me down a different path. Okay. Uh, one of the organizations we have here is Black Male Initiative, uh, and that's a, a support system for black males where they dress up on certain days of the week, and uh, they have study tables, mandatory study tables, and it's, it, those are efforts to create a professional and a positive academic image, uh, but not just an image for other people, an image within themselves that says, I'm valuable, I'm important, I'm successful, and I can do this. Um, and so I think that goes a long way. We also have an organization called Today's Black Women, and for, for female African-American students, that, that organization does, does similar things. And does it actually, uh, is it successful in attracting young men 
It is. It's sort of like a fraternity. They do rush uh, to get new people in. Um, but again, I think there are there are surprises in both directions from students who think, well, you know, I don't know that they'll be successful, and somehow they connect with maybe a peer uh, who kind of nudges them in the right direction. Uh, and there are others who come from a, a support system that you think, well, this will just be icing on the cake, and instead it becomes too much of a social environment, and then it works against them. So it's finding that happy medium between, okay, I'm connecting with other people like me, and this is a good academic support system, but at the same time, not allowing it to be too much of a social environment where, uh, yeah, I'm having a great time, but I'm not accomplishing my goals for college. Okay. Well, Richard, we only we have less than 60 seconds left here, but I want to ask you uh, if you would tell us a little bit about your background and, and what were some of the uh, influences uh, that, that convinced you to go to college. Well, I, I'm a first-generation college graduate, um, but I think I, I believed I would always go to college. My mother, I'm the oldest child in the family, and I did well in school, and I, I think I always had that message that I would go to college. Um, when I, I graduated from college, uh, I worked for the Boy Scouts of America in the center city in Toledo, Ohio, and I worked with a lot of African-American and Hispanic units, and that was great teaching uh, ground for me, uh, because when I left that position, I put my heart and soul into it, but I did realize that those those volunteers saw that and so when I left they were very upset because I was leaving and that helped me see that they saw that what I was doing was far more than a job so I think even back then that might have planted the seed for this topic although I didn't have any idea then um, and then I uh, worked in education in a variety of different uh, settings private public four-year two-year uh, in Indiana Ohio uh, and then I did corporate training and consulting for about 14 years, um, changing the cultures of companies, um, and then came back to higher ed about five and a half years ago. And this position blends what I did in corporations as well as what I did in higher ed previously. Okay. Well, Richard, we really appreciate you coming on to discuss your dissertation research on the resilience in African-American male college students. And uh, maybe we can get you back on the show again and you can give us an update and uh, we can discuss this more. Thanks, William. That would be great. Thanks for um, inviting me tonight, and, and I, I hope people get the message that anyone can make a difference in a student's life. And, you know, if, if one person just takes the time to do that for one student, um, the possibilities are endless. Okay, well, thanks again. You okay, thank you very much, William. Take care. <laughs> All right, take care. Bye. We want to thank Richard Coleman, Director of the Center for Career and Employee Relations at Vincennes University, for joining us we hope you enjoyed these special Bring It On broadcasts with guests Raheem Shabazz and Richard Coleman, highlighting two unique challenges confronting Black and Latino males in America. Bring It On producer is Clarence Boone. Production support comes from news director Wes Martin. Bring It On's board of engineers is yours truly, Chantal Lafontaine, with a cold. Our original theme music was created by Jamal Afron. And be sure to tune in next Monday, May 20th at 6 p.m. for another exciting Bring It On broadcast right here on your community radio station, WFHB. You've been listening to Bring It On, a volunteer-powered production of Community Radio WFHB in Bloomington, Indiana. Bring It On is your forum for open dialogue on the people, issues, and events affecting the African-American community in South Central Indiana and beyond. 
Send your comments, suggestions, and story ideas directly to the Bring It On staff. The email address is bringit at wfhb.org. That's bringit at wfhb.org.